0: It's September 1955. In Bern, Switzerland, President David o. McKay dedicates the first temple outside of North America. European saints rejoice as they receive the blessings of the temple. Soon, Henry and Inge Burkhardt leave their home in East Germany, traveling to Bern to be married for eternity. The next day, they return to communist East Germany feeling God has a work for them to do in their country. These stories are next in Chapter 39, A New Era. This is Saints, Volume 3, the podcast.
1: Welcome to The Saints Podcast. I'm Shaylin Back. And I'm James Perry. Joining us today we have Ray Kuhn, a historian of German church history, and Christian Fingerlay, the Europe Area Church History Manager. Thank you both so much for joining us today and welcome to the podcast.
0: Thank you. Good to be with you.
1: Ray, as we get started, can you just briefly share with us about how you became interested and involved in the history of the church in Germany?
2: Well, I knew the church existed in East Germany because I had served a mission in the North German mission earlier, and the East German part of that was technically part of the North German mission. But we as North German missionaries did not function in East Germany at all. And so only a few missionaries that served in Berlin were aware of the flow back and forth from East German saints' leadership into the West Berlin, because the West Berlin is where the mission president initially resided. There was no mission president in East Germany. President Borchardt became that later. But the mission president over East Germany resided in Berlin, and that worked fairly easily at first, but increasingly became more and more politically a problem. So I was aware of the existence of the church in East Germany, knew little about it. I had an aunt who lived in East Germany, did not leave that area when all the rest of my relatives came over. But as a historian, I was somewhat aware of that, but had no personal experience with that until the Lord sent my wife and I to the mission, to the temple. And there, within the first week or so, I met President Borkhart because he would come in at least once a month and do sealing work and other ordinances. And I, at the time, was coordinating the work in the initiatory, which was always an interesting, challenging thing, because every week it was a different language. In that temple, there were always a couple of brothers coming from different countries who supposedly knew the temple ordinances, but very vaguely. And so I worked in the initiatory area a lot, and so did President Borcard sometimes, And it was after those sessions that I said, we should get together sometime. I'd like to know what you know about this. And the next time he came in, two or three, four weeks later, he brought in some documents he had written during his time in East Germany. And we proceeded to talk about that. And that was the start of the whole thing. He was wonderful, very conservative, very hesitant to say anything. That's his nature. He didn't ever share anything with his counsellors because he didn't want to burden them with information that could be a problem with the Stasi at that time. That's how I became familiar with President Borchardt.
3: Right. Could I be very cheeky? What years were you there as a young missionary?
2: 58 to 60. And there was no wall in Berlin at that time but we just didn't go into the east although we went into the east all the time to listen to the opera and those kind of the cultural parts of old germany were still in east berlin well christian
3: you are the other department employee in europe can you tell
0: us about your role and connection to church history well in the fall of 2020 i started in this role as area manager for church history And here we have three major responsibilities that actually play into in what we're discussing today. One is to collect church history relevant records. The other is to preserve them. And the last one would be to share that. With the collection, many people are familiar with the annual histories that we collect. But we also do oral histories. We try to digitize Photos, letters, journals, artifacts, and bring in even artwork. And there's one thing that we're doing here in Europe that I'm involved in, and those are virtual tours of church historic sites and that around the globe. Today, I was in contact with the Rome Temple Visitor Center, and they offer these tours, and that is a fantastic opportunity. And I'm glad to be involved in that
3: incidentally i've organized a branch walk next week for a walk along a stunning beach site and then we're going to an old latter-day saint chapel that was used in the 1850s that's still standing in europe there's a tremendous amount of church history and i think what we're going to find both in this chapter that we're discussing and in subsequent chapters in volume four is that there's a lot of church history around us wherever we are well ray to get us started I think many of our listeners might be interested to know how difficult it might have been for the East German saints to travel to listen to the choir in West Berlin. Can you give us some insight into the state of the city and the country at this time in relation to freedoms and mobility?
2: Yes. Until the wall went up in 61, there was a lot of ability for saints from the East to come into West Berlin. The restrictions became tighter over time because you were not supposed to be coming into West Berlin or even into East Berlin unless you had business there, because that was the way you got into West Berlin and left through air, usually. So those restrictions started increasing as more and more people were escaping from the East. And so over time, it became more difficult for people like President Borchardt and the district presidents in the East to come in to West Berlin and meet with their mission president. That's the background. Regarding the choir, my feeling is that there was very limited problem for the saints to come into West Berlin to hear the choir if they could afford to come in and could find a place of lodging. Finance, it would always be a problem, but so many people came into West Berlin to hear the choir. The flow was fairly frequent at that time, and it became less and less so until it finally culminated in the building of the wall. Well, in
1: this chapter... As I was reading about Helga's experience getting to listen to the choir, it was clearly a sacrifice for her to travel to even do this. Can you give us any more insights into what conditions were like, maybe more generally, in East Germany during the
2: mid-1950s? West Berlin was very vibrant, and a lot of things had to come in by air. And in the very early stages, the Russians tried to cut that off. And the Americans persisted and started the airlift, the Berlin Bridge, to bring things in by air. That went on for a little while, and that broke the resistance. The ability of the Americans to supply Berlin with all the necessities they needed, a lot of food and other material, broke that resistance. And the Russians understood the Americans were persistent and were not going to allow Berlin to be strangled. And so there was a great disparity between East and West Berlin, because that aid that came into West Berlin did not filter into East Berlin. So there was one time when I was a missionary there, 58 to 60, where I was a branch president in the North Branch, Nordgemeinde at that time. And one or two of our members were East Berliners who came across the border all the time because they had jobs in the West. Berlin was very integrated economically. Power, supply, transportation, electricity, all those kind of things was integrated. And so if you had a job, there were West Berliners that came into East Berlin to perform in the opera, for example. And one sister came in as a single sister, and she came in every Sunday to church. But She asked me one time if I would go in with my companion to meet a friend of hers who did not want to come into the West to talk with him a little bit about the church. And I went in and met at her place, and she was a little bit late. And she apologized because she said when she got off work, there were oranges available in the West. And she stood in line in the stores to get them and take them home to the East because there was no such thing in the East. That required international currency to import food like that. And it could happen into West Berlin, but not into the East. That's just one example. They were not starving, but they were very impoverished in many ways because they did not have the benefit of all the Western goods that were flowing into the East.
3: Thank you for that, Ray. And we've talked about it a little bit with regards to how the city is divided, but can you tell us about how the division of the country and the division of the city impacted
2: the church and its members? Well, the leadership of the church in the East, district presidents and President Burkhardt came into West Berlin regularly for meetings with the mission president there. They came in with few problems. President Burkhardt had the most because of his documents he would take with him, church records, genealogy information, and so on. The East Germans were very diligent in doing genealogy work. So bringing in those documents could be a problem at times. But the other leaders came in all the time. And President Burkhardt met President Kimball, at least, and some other church leaders in the West, and he could come in. But the rest of the members was not quite that easy to get in. It became more difficult over time. So President Burckhardt, because of those restrictions, he became, over time, their tie tied to the church. And if he said, the Brethren want us to do this and that, there was no question about that. So the flow was restricted and became more so over time.
1: Well, Ray, can you tell us anything about how the choir was received by German people after their tour?
2: Oh, they were thrilled by it. And they were thrilled personally to have this sense that the choir was not just something they maybe heard over Radio Free Europe, but was actually there. That's similar to the temple. The church was coming in to them rather than always being over in America The choir was a great symbol of that, and I think that was the first time the choir ever went anywhere overseas. It was quite an undertaking to do. The church members were impressed with that, and to be able to hear that just solidified their feeling that the church cared about them and they were part of the church. And they also knew that others of their non-member friends also had this opportunity, so it gave them a way to introduce the church to their friends. They really relished it, personally and with their broader relationships. It was a marvelous move.
1: How else did the choir's tour um, in 1955 impact the church in Europe? So... Brother
0: Ray Kühne already mentioned here this identification that came with it and this unifying factor. Now, before that, the members did not have much exposure to the choir. I remember when in the 70s, my family had the first six tabernacle choir cassettes and how much they were cherished and treasured and kept for a long time. So I want to say that the performance and the visit of the Tabernacle Choir had a unifying factor that helped also to bridge the various language barriers there were and differences of cultures and even political views.
2: I would say that last point of Christians, also political views, has an impact on the East German leadership, I'm sure. They learned over time that while the church was headquartered in Salt Lake, they began to see that the church was not the American government enemy and was a positive force. And that had a real impact.
3: Thank you for that. I think some listeners might be interested in your perspectives on how Americans were received by the German saints. Obviously the war has come to a close just 10 years earlier and there's still many political pressures in the region and across the globe. How do you think the German saints received the American members and leaders of the
2: church? Really, there was no political feeling, no ideology among church members. And so the fact that they were ruled by a communist group They had always been ruled by some authoritative group, even before communism, whether it was the Nazis or even before that. And America was always the land of opportunity, the land of freedom, and so on. They were used to not having freedoms, but they saw America in a very positive light generally. There was always a feeling that they didn't understand this fully. How could anybody understand the conditions under which they lived? But America was a beacon, obviously, and it was held in good stead. Politics had nothing to do with that.
0: I would like to come back to the oranges that Ray had mentioned as a sign of the scarcity of many products that existed. So I'm aware of reports from children who had their first orange that was handed to them by American soldiers. Or we have this wonderful story of the candy bomber who would share his ration of sweets with the children. And now, of course, if something like that happened, that opened hearts and brought these people who had been enemies before closer to each other. It must have been
3: hard for both Americans and Germans to transition from fighting one another to being peaceful, but clearly they were able to. They were able to move past the horrors of the war and the legacy of the war and to feel connected to the church regardless. Well, this is the final chapter in the book, and so many of the stories have been leading towards the building and the opening of the Swiss temple. And Christian, you are a German Latter-day Saint. I wonder if you might be able to tell us a little bit about
0: your personal connection to the Swiss temple. My grandmother, Margarete Alma Fingerle, received her endowment in the Bern Switzerland temple and was sealed there to her husband, who had lost his life during World War II in Berlin. And that actually happened on the very same day when Henry and Inge Burkhardt were sealed to each other in the house of the Lord. They're in the same place. Now, my parents were sealed in the baron Switzerland Temple. I received my endowment there. Two of my siblings were sealed there, and I happened to be their witness. And I had the opportunity even as a young missionary to share the gospel in the shadows of the temple. So based on these and multiple other experiences, I can say that my family does have strong bonds to that sacred edifice in Switzerland.
1: Thanks, Christian. Well, and this being the first temple outside of North America, it's really significant to have a better understanding of how it was built and the work that went into it. In previous chapters, we read about President Hinckley being asked to make the temple film in multiple language to facilitate the experience of members that will be coming from other countries. So there's a lot of American church leaders that are coming to the dedication But we also see local members playing an important role in bringing about the temple. For example, the church employed local craftsmen whenever possible. William Zimmer, a counselor in the mission presidency, redrew the plans in German. There's Michael Jaeger. He was the branch president in Basel, and he became the contractor for the metalwork on the doors and the baptismal font. It's just amazing. There's Hans Lücher the newly appointed temple engineer. And then of course, like I mentioned, Brother Hinckley together with Paul Evans and Joe Shaw. They were the two other members of the committee who produced the temple films. They just worked such long hours. They were installing and synchronizing the film projectors and audio equipment. And then they had to check these out in each of the languages. Those are just a handful of examples. And I feel like now with how many temples we have around the world, it feels like a well-oiled machine. So it was just fascinating to me to read about this and to know the work that went in, the prayers that went in, kind of the anxiety and the stress that went into this. And I just think it's been such a neat way to end the volume. But Christian, what were some of the practical challenges facing the leaders as they prepared for the dedication?
0: Well, let's talk about the need of skilled workers Throughout the war years, Europe had lost millions of their young and talented workers. So it was not easy to find the right people to do so. And those who were willing to work and contribute under these raised circumstances and expectations that we have on temple construction sites where people commit not to swear, not to drink alcohol, and to make this a sacred place from the very first beginning. So finding here the right workers was surely something that needed special attention. Another thing was to get the material. Here, we're 10 years after the end of the Second World War, and building material was needed everywhere. And to find the best quality of material was a logistical masterpiece that had to be accomplished. And I would like to come back to the translation work that needed to happen before the endowment and the temple ordinances had been performed almost only in English, some Spanish translation, but all of a sudden we needed numerous European languages Translation work had to go on. And as you had mentioned, the endowment presentation as a film experience had to be produced in these various languages. And that took some of the best ideas and inspiration and seeking of the Lord's guidance to make this happen under these special circumstances and short time that was available.
2: Shailen, I was fascinated and learned from that text things I didn't know before about the idea of building temples in Europe came from all the members leaving Europe. And how do we keep them there? And then the idea, okay, we need a Templar. That was a marvelous part of that text. that was all new to me. I hope everybody reads that.
3: Well, thank you for that, Ray. I guess it just goes to show that everyone can learn something from saints, whether seasoned historians or brand new to the history of the church. Well, I wonder if either of you could help us better understand the temple dedication by just taking a moment to talk about where members traveled from to attend the dedication. We know that many of the East German saints were unable to be there, but where are some of the locations that people are traveling from to be there
0: at the temple? Our records show that they came from all over and that they had to travel long distances. They came from Denmark, and if they had to travel from Copenhagen, which is in the south of the country, to Bern, Switzerland, those were 750 miles, 1,200 kilometers, which easily took them 12, 13 hours at that time. If they came from Finland and we had those Finns coming, the distance was twice as far. So they traveled for two or three complete days to come there. We had members come to the temple dedication, also from Germany, the Netherlands, Norway, and Sweden. And that was like a great come together, like a reunion that had not been experienced before.
3: I might also add that while researching this chapter, I found people from Italy who had joined the church in France, but who lived scattered in Italy, who traveled to the temple dedication, Swedish saints who boarded buses along with the Finnish saints who traveled for days, and they named the buses after, I believe it was Book of Mormon Prophets. There was a sister whose family had joined the church in the Netherlands. Her father had been tortured in a prisoner of war camp and lost his sight. And she was uh, about 18. She hired a car and she drove her parents to the temple. And that day, the day of the dedication, made a promise to herself that she would only marry in the temple, which she did. And has many active members of the church today in her family. So for many families in the church who go back several generations before all of the other temples started to be built, this temple was a place of profound value for them. This is a place where people made life-altering and eternity-altering decisions. It's amazing. I wonder then if we could talk about the way that the temple dedication impacted the church in Europe. What do we know about the effect that it
0: had? Of course, the blessings of the temple bring hope and internal perspective to families. Because the saints who had stayed in Europe and had not left the continent to receive the temple blessings in North America, for them it was the fulfillment of dreams. Now, in addition to that, as we look at the family names of those who would serve in the temples, we have numerous who returned to their home countries which they had left before. They returned to serve as in temple presidencies and as temple missionaries. We had an even growing interest in family history, which already had been there, but now that they could go to the temple and perform these sacred ordinances in behalf of the deceased ancestors brought an even more profound interest. And I would like to mention the emigration that was based on the desire to go to Zion, where house of the Lord could be found. That motivation came to an end, and that was the time when more and more members decided to stay in Europe and continue building of the church in their home countries. And as the temple became like a melting pot, members from all across the continent, but actually from all across the world, would come there. It had a major unifying factor of bringing a loving brotherhood and sisterhood among the members of the church, but also among humankind.
1: At the end of this volume, we see a couple, the Burkharts, choosing to stay in Europe, specifically in East Germany. Can you tell us a little bit more about why they chose to stay?
0: Well, there are surely individual reasons, and I want to call it a motivation mix when people make their decisions. But there was surely a strong desire and commitment to magnify one's calling, And Henry Burkhardt was aware of that, and he would not just walk away from that. So he was exercising great responsibility. And also, on a personal side, by choosing to return to his home, he kept his family and his friends together, and he could continue to build the church where he had left off. He had been called as a long term missionary. He was actually never, ever really released from the time that he was called to serve as a full time missionary at the age of 20. And he just went on and on and on when more responsibility was heaped on his shoulders as a counselor to the mission president, then as the mission president himself in Dresden, and later as the temple president and matron together with his wife, Inge.
2: The church, especially in the East, Before the war and during the war was a very close knit group despite the war. That was home, and their association was with their fellow members. You'd be loath to leave that. They had unique relationships that many of us don't experience in the West in America. That was their home. And there were people when the wall went up who went back home because of that reason and their sense of responsibility. There was a member that lived in east germany close to the west german border in a kind of remote area and he decided he had a good job and he was trusted by his employers one of his daughters had been a missionary when missionaries were allowed afterwards and she had stayed in the west and they decided to go to the west he actually packed his bags he and his wife went to the train station in leipzig i think it was Standing there on the Bahnsteig and thinking, what will happen to our ranch back home? And they went back home. That's the dedication they had to those people in the church. That was their home. These were their fellow brothers and sisters. And that overcame, for most of them, the urge to go west.
0: Ray, you might know that I'm from the west. And therefore, I would love to repeat something that I have heard that has been said by a church leader smilingly. Quote, the West Germans had a Mercedes while the East Germans had faith. And that is, to me, a wonderful answer, you know, why Henry and Inge Burkhardt might have returned, because they for sure had that faith that Heavenly Father would look after them and their loved ones, and that he would fulfill every promise and prophecy, including those that Thomas S. Monson would make later in Görlitz. They just knew that this would be something worthwhile to live for and to make a contribution.
2: Absolutely. You know, during the war, the church was the strongest in the East. If you look at the pre-war history of where the branches were, they were all in the East. The East German mission was far stronger than the West German mission. Those two missions had separated before the war. And the strength was in the East. And that's what you're saying, that tie to those families. And there was almost a disdain for the enticements of wealth and so on in the West that the East Germans felt. We hang together and the gospel is what holds us together. It was strong. The church fell apart in the West during the war. In the East, the East German presidency, the East German brethren, kept that going during the war and welcomed the immigrants who were being pushed out of Poland. That togetherness in the East existed before the war and continued through that whole period. It was a marvelous thing.
3: Well, with that in our minds, it might be interesting to discuss what you think readers might take away from this chapter.
0: If you're looking for heroes or spiritual giants, this is the time and the place to find some of them. Now, we have in this chapter the opportunity to meet and learn about people who were willing to sacrifice and forsake their own fortune for some higher and loftier purposes because of the trust they had in their God. And the hope for the fulfillment of these, including that the covenants that they had made would enable them to master whatever challenge there might be in their life.
2: Absolutely. I agree with that, Christian. There was a great sense the church was it. And in my interviews with young people who had been born in the 50s, up to 60 and so on, they felt very strongly that they had a sense of responsibility to the state without loving the state. They were going to be responsible citizens as long as the state allowed them to exercise their faith. And so they chose to stay there because they were supporting each other. And the gospel didn't require them to go out to the West where they could make more money or so on. They had the freedom to live their religion, which was some restrictions, sure. I don't want to understate the restrictions, but I just have this great admiration for those that stayed and why they stayed. And that shows us that we can
0: live according to the gospel under any circumstances.
1: Thank you. Well, Ray and Christian, I've particularly appreciated your personal connections to the people the places the experiences in this chapter so we just want to thank you for joining us today and being so open with your perspectives thank you
2: thank you for the opportunity the saints project is tremendous
3: thank you for listening to this week's episode we hope you enjoyed it we hope you took away some new insights into this volume and we would love to hear your thoughts opinions, questions, and insights from this chapter of Saints. And you can email saintspodcast at churchofjesuschrist.org. It would be great to hear from you.